Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guests this week, yes, plural guests, are Christopher McDougall and Eric Orton, co-authors of the new book, Born to Run 2. If you have been a runner at all in the last 15 years or so, you've probably heard of and have likely read Born to Run, which Chris wrote uh, way back in 2009 and was partially fully credited with kickstarting the barefoot running craze, which swept us all (laughs) way back then. Um, But they have written a new book. They have written Born to Run 2, a training guide, of course, sprinkled with stories, anecdotes, illustrations of what they're trying to express, explain, and communicate to us about just the joy of running. Because of course, as Chris and Eric will say, we are all born to run. So Chris is an author and a runner. Eric is a coach and a runner, and they have collaborated on this book. And so this is a really fun conversation. I've never had two guests on the show at the same time before, which was required um, a bit of a, a shift in my part, my typical ask open-ended questions that sound like statements and just wait for the other person to respond doesn't work so well when you have two guests, but I really loved talking to them. Uh, This is a great conversation. If you haven't read the first book, it's highly worth the read. The second book is not only highly interesting, but it's also beautifully photographed and illustrated. So here you go, Born to Run, the sequel. Welcome to the show, Christopher McDougall and Eric Orton, authors of the new book, Born to Run 2. Great to see you guys. Hey, thanks for having us on. Yeah, good to see you, Elizabeth. So I ask all my guests this question, and you two are going to be no exception to the rule. I want to know, and we'll go in alphabetical order to make things easy. um, How did you become a runner? So is that first name alphabetical or last name alphabetical? (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Let's do first me alphabetical. Uh, All right. Hey, I got a story, Eric. I don't think you even know this story um, because my origin creation story actually way predates even meeting us. I think I really became a runner because when my dad came out of the Marine Corps, super fit, super buff, and then a couple years go by working in an office, he starts to get out of shape. So he started to run. And his way of running, Eric, was to run the same number of miles per day as corresponded to the month. So he'd start in January as a mile a day, February two a day, three a day, four a day, which is no big deal until you start getting into the fall months. And, you know, the dude was cranking out his 11 miles a day every day through November and then running two marathons. He would run either Philly Marine Corps or Philly and New York every year and was dialed into the minute, like 3.30, two marathons every year, year after year. So I think that example ultimately kind of laid the groundwork for me. Oh, my answer is so boring now, as usual. Um, how I became a runner, my, my earliest recollection, recollections as a childhood, um, it goes back to kind of the 
the elementary school day field days where you everybody went out in the back of the school and had a big field day where you did the standing broad jump and you did sprints and it was kind of like the, the elementary school Olympics. And I was never really good at school, but I became one of the, the faster runners. And I think maybe looking back at what I'm most proud of throughout my whole running career is the diversity that I have had with running. I've been a sprinter and I've run you know, more than a hundred miles and everywhere in between. So I just kind of um, always see that childhood fondness to just letting it rip. One of the things that I learned pretty quickly, because I started running to lose weight to all the kind of the reason that a lot of people start running to not even like self-flagellation, but like uh, something else. We're always searching for something else. Right. And then one of the things I land on now is that, you know, if this isn't fun, most of the time, if I'm not enjoying this, then why, why do it? And that's, I think why I really loved what you guys were saying in the message you have is that this isn't about obsessing over shaving seconds off your PR. It's about movement and joy in the outdoors and, and freedom and that's a really tough place for a lot of people who come to the sport as an adult to be in because like just said, a lot of people start running or refine running with this hyper specific goal in mind. I'm gonna run this very specific distance in this time, or I'm gonna lose weight or whatever the thing is. And we don't often approach many of our hobbies just out of pure joy. It's just a different, a different perspective that I think a lot of people aren't embracing and really should when we talk about how running should fit into your life. Hey, I think the big problem is that we want a, an immediate result from running. You know, we've been sort of tricked into believing that this is a shortcut to physical well-being and not a craft. Because every other activity you learn, if you're learning how to swim or play the piano or a martial art, you're not trying to like, let's, let me see how fast I can do it. You know, I'm not trying to play the guitar as fast as I can. I'm taking my time. I'm learning the craft. With running, it's supposed to be this antidote, you know, this remedy for bad behavior from the weekend. And that's basically why we're doing it. And that's to me, is a big shortcoming that if we can just embrace it as a fine art that is pleasurable in the moment as we're learning, then, you know, you're sort of on your way to really a, life, a lifetime of really happy running. And, and you asked too, why 15 years, you know, from the first book. And it kind of also points back to Chris is that, you know, when we started training for the 50 mile race in the Copper Canyon that was born to run, you know, obviously that was his goal, but his bigger goal was to be able to run anywhere, anytime for any distance in a joyful manner. And he's experienced that for 15 years. And I think that goes to what can really resonate with anybody. If you create this craft and see it as a craft, you can then apply it in any way you want to in a pleasurable way. Yeah, we had to make sure that the space monkey actually survived the trip. You know, I'm the, I'm the monkey. <laughs> right. like, hey, 15 years later, hey, you're still alive. You know, like, I guess this stuff really works. Well, that's really kind of the, the, the I get to the origin point of this whole the born to run story has been that Chris, you were, couldn't figure out why running hurt all the time. And like, you know, and I think one of the, the central questions is that if we are born to run as humans, as evolution has 
you know, allowed us to do become these wonderful endurance runners. That's how we stayed alive for so long. Um, was that if so many of us are literally born to be runners, why are so many runners suffering just kind of the basics of even completing a mile comfortably or even putting month after month of training together without breaking down or getting injured? Like what's going on here? And I think it's a really, that's a big question you set out to try and tackle. It is. And, you know, unfortunately the answer is right in front of my eyes and yeah, I, I didn't really see it because of the the sort of amount of propaganda and marketing that we're bombarded with in the recreational running world, the answer should have been obvious. It's, you know, it's follow the money. And the two things that you're constantly being pushed to open your wallet for are shoes and races. Constantly, you know, sign up for this race, qualify for this race, travel to this race, buy these shoes, buy these shoes, buy these shoes. And to me, those are the two, the twin evils right there, because those are the things which I feel I've really been a disease which has really eaten away at the joy of the sport uh, because it becomes performance-based. How fast? How far? What have you done? What have you done? And also, what have you bought? Are you wearing the right stuff? Did you rotate them? So that kind of thing, those two things, they take away from, number one, the form, actually mastering your own body, and number two, the fun and the pleasure. Because if you're pushing yourself all the time into the red zone, you're not taking a breath and enjoying the day, like lifting your head and having a chat. One of the things I really appreciated, you know, whether you called it this or not, but I actually want to ask you about your, you know, the gears, what I call gears on a bike, right? You have gears, running gears. And I love when you talk about basically the three main gears, your all day, your threshold, and then your, you know, full burn. Um, that so much of what we're doing as endurance runners, unless somebody listening here is only training to be a sprinter, this conversation is <laughs> probably not for you. Um, is that you want to spend a lot of your time in this kind of all day, I could do this all day effort in intensity zone. And that's not where a lot of people naturally fall. They think in order for a run to be successful, you got to be pushing the pace. You should be breathing hard, hands on your knees day after day after day. And that we know like that is just, that's not how to approach this. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, you know, I, I think, one thing with that is that people maybe are, would be surprised at how easy, easy should be. And therefore, every step, even though it's easy, is usually a good one. And therefore, every step can be a form of strength training. And people don't see it that way, is that if you're inefficient and you're not able to run easy, then we tend to speed up because it becomes a little bit more comfortable but then we start grinding the gears and running ourselves into the ground. And that's where a lot of the dysfunction takes place. So learning to run easy or all day speed is a very, very crucial part of that foundation. And I love that you talked about, you, you have this little um, bit in the book about, you know, Caesar's legions. And it was how many miles the Roman soldiers could cover, and out, you know, you basically figured out what the pace was. If they were if they were going at all day pace, they were going about fifteen minutes per mile, um, which for a lot of people that's going to be that's their easy effort pace, that's their all day pace. But they don't want to run that slowly because of insert X Y Z reason here. Um, but that's sometimes just the pace you got to go if you want to really enjoy the scenery and and go easy enough. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, think, I think 
the, the, that was the first thing that Eric diagnosed me with. The first time we met in Denver City Park was, dude, you were just dropping it into third gear and going. As long as you could last in third gear, that's all you had. So if I could do 30 minutes and then I was kind of flaming out, it's exactly like a car. Um, I, I had a girlfriend years ago whose grandmother drove a stick shift, but she couldn't shift. So she put it in first gear and you can hear her coming from three miles away. It's like, you know, and that was it. So she would burn out her transmission, be always going that one gear. To me, it was a revelation that you can actually work your way up and down the gear chart. But then again, that's that's actually what the fun of running is, is that you're shifting up and down. You go a little bit faster and a little bit slower. And exploring those gears, exploring anything is what makes running fun. Um, something I also want to ask you about, I just I just want to know how you figure this out. Obviously, this is, um, you know, as a writer, your job. The... Um, 100 ups. What's the origin story for that? Where do you find these stories are amazing. These like kind of, you know, Walter, Walter. Yeah. Hang on. Walter George, right? Walter George. Yeah. Okay. Walter George. So here's the thing about it. Here's what happened. When I started working on born to run, the running bookshelf was really, really thin. There were almost no books on it. And there was a couple training guides. Uh, Dean Carnazes' book was the big sensation at the time. Otherwise, there was really nothing on the shelf. And so when I wanted to learn, because I was new to the sport myself, I wanted to learn about running, and I would go to Barnes & Noble. There was nothing there to read. And so I started digging back into out-of-print books, and I found this whole kind of treasury of these old lost books. Like This guy named Ron Dawes, the self-made Olympian. This was a self-coached guy who was like running 200 miles a week in Wisconsin. Uh there was all the Percy Serity stuff, you know, coming out of, uh, of New Zealand and the old author Lydia books out of Australia. And I just started to buy old out of print books on, on A Libris and they would come in. I wouldn't even know who these people were, but one of them was called The Five Kings of Distance. It is an out of print book from like the 1940s. And it looked at five different runners throughout history dating back to Native Americans who were racing against early colonists in the United States, up to this guy named Walter George, who was a chemist's apprentice, basically a pharmacist's apprentice. And he had to work behind the counter in the drugstore all day, from like 7 in the morning to like 10 at night. Uh, but he was an aspiring track athlete. He wanted to, to race on the track, and he only had Sundays off. So his only way to train was basically by running in place behind the counter. But what he developed was a thing called the 100 up. And the 100 up is a perfect form exercise because you can't run wrong when you're running in place. You can't heel strike. You can't overstride. You can't kick back because you'll fall off balance. So what he did was he would mark two little hash marks on the floor behind the counter about shoulder width apart. And then he would do 100 perfect repetitions of raising his knee as high as his hips and landing his forefoot down on each individual mark. If he strayed off the mark, then he would have to start over again. So he would do it at a very slow pace, and then gradually faster, faster, and faster. And then when this guy comes out on a Sunday, he just kicked the living tar out of everybody. He was the best racer on the track, even though he trained by running in place. So I came across that story, and it seemed to coincide a lot with the kind of form exercises that Eric was teaching me that were really making a difference in my life. And it's kind of opened my eyes to the fact this idea of form it has its pedigree throughout time like people have always been trying to figure it out we're the only people that sort of ignore form you know we're all about shoes we're nothing about form and i think learning a lesson from the past is, is the way to go 
I think we can all agree at the end of the day, running should be fun, right? Running should be fun. It should be your time. It should be joyful. It should be playful. Even when you're working hard or hardly working on your easy runs, running should be fun. And what is more fun on a run than wearing the exact right pair of gooder sunglasses for you to express exactly how you're feeling on that run, whether you're feeling funky or playful or very, very serious. I don't know about you, but I definitely have specific pairs of gooder sunglasses that I only wear when I mean business. That means those key workouts and the races, oh, they get saved for that special day. So if you like to expand your own Gooder collection, you can do so and get free shipping on your next order. Support the pod. Have fun accessorizing yourself. Just use code RUNEXP at checkout on your next order at Gooder.com. On your next pair or pairs of Gooders, like I said, free shipping. Stock up now. Get your shipping in before the holiday rush really, really hits. That's free shipping on your next order, gooder.com using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P at gooder.com. G-O-O-D-R.com. Look good. Run gooder. Eric, how interesting is it to work with a client who like brings stuff like this to you? And you're like, that's really cool. Or maybe you'd already been using that uh, as part of your well, coaching. Yeah, every time we get together, there's always a new story like that. So, and, and to me, that was what was so much fun about writing this book together is that, you know, every Monday I'd look forward to getting that email of the next chapter of his writing and this new story. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I throw it down, go for my run because I'm so inspired. And that's that's what I love about working with Chris is that he's always had these stories that I'm so enthralled with hearing that, um, again, kind of mesh for me as a coach, the kind of the ancestral type of training and how I can look at, hey, what makes sense from a scientist standpoint and from a coaching standpoint and and then put it into practice. Something that really stuck with me from the first book um, that I, I have never forgotten is you talk about when you ro- watch a child run, they run with this perfect form. And then over time, it's like a, they just, we kind of forget. Um, and... <laughs> It's true. I mean, you know, I'll go watch kids run around the soccer field and they all look like they could be on the cover of some magazine, you know, with their beautiful form. And then like you, you know, said in the new book, you go out and watch any, any random 10 K on a Sunday and everybody's kind of doing their own version. I, in my training philosophy, I do personally believe there are many ways to execute the principles of good form that may look slightly different from runner to runner. But I also, I don't subscribe to the principle that there's no such thing as bad form because there very clearly is such a thing as bad running form. So, and I know a huge part of the book was form-based, right? It's like, how do we mobilize, strengthen our bodies as runners to allow ourselves to run in the way which we should be running? And obviously this has really been integral as you, for like, this is how you, you know, rediscovered your love of running, Chris, was the form stuff. Yeah, that was it. To me, that was the big eye-opener because... You know, the funny thing was, I was actually a writer for Runner's World at the time. You know, I was a freelance writer, but one of my contracts was with Runner's World. And I never heard anybody talk about form, ever. And actually, you hear the opposite. Like, don't mess with your form. You run the way you run. Your own natural thing is blah, blah, blah. And so you heard that message over and over and over again. So I just assumed that was the truth. And then I meet Eric, and he's like, it's all about form. 
And then he just pounds the logic through my brain of like, of course it's about form. Like Steph Curry doesn't just go out there and chuck a ball, you know? Uh, a, a high diver doesn't just like bounce off the board and hope for the best. Everything is about dialing in the proper biomechanical efficiency. So why is running for some reason, you know, immune from the law of physics? And when he, when he got that through my head, I'm like, oh, again, this is like the answer was right in front of me in plain sight. I never got it. And then when he taught it to me, two things happened about form. Number one was the immediate results. Like, oh, wow, I feel better. My legs feel springier. I don't feel achy. But the second thing was it was really gratifying in the moment. I think a lot of people feel like, you know, I just want to go out and run. Like, I don't want to think too much. I want to put in my earbuds and just run. But to me, like the pleasure it's like eating a really tasty bite of food. You know, like, yeah, I can cram calories down my throat. And I don't have to think about it. Or I can really savor each bite and, and taste how delicious it is. And to me, that's what focusing on running form is all about. Like every stride is gratifying because it feels good and it makes you want to make the next one even better. I'll say, as a coach, I think a lot of the concern about changing running form is that if you, if you, Tell people something like there's a wrong way to do it, right? We don't want to just like pull on the string because the whole sweater can unravel. And sometimes if you tell a runner, do this, consciously do this instead, it will cause some other weird thing to happen. But and Eric, I want to ask you about this because in the book, you have a whole bunch of basically form mobility drills, exercises, all these things that are active movement. You're not sitting there telling the runner, think about this to change your form. You are allowing them to practice the movement patterns that will allow them to change their form. Well, I think that's the key is that coaching run form is not about telling someone how to do something. It's putting them in a situation that they can feel it and experience it for themselves that takes place through time. And I think that that's where I see kind of the, maybe the disconnect out there is that whether it's a disconnect with coaches that they, they can't relay that or a disconnect with the athlete where they continue to think that their frustration means that they need to learn more when they really need to practice more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And I, I think that's, that's the key. You know, Elizabeth, you're in a really tough situation because movement doesn't really translate well to language. You know, if I said right now, okay, uh, let's, let's all scratch our nose. Well, is it right hand or is it left hand? Front of the nose, side of the nose, scratch it a lot, scratch it a little. You know, you give what you think is a simple instruction, but it leads up to the person to interpret. So we, we recognize that coming into this is that how can we make form instruction foolproof? Because anything we put into print can be subject to a million different interpretations. And so what Eric was really super ingenious about was coming up with exercises that give the behavior by feel. It does, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to videotape it. No one has to watch you. You can feel. That's like we did that, that rock lobster drill. Did you, uh, did you check that out? 
I actually, Rock Lobster is the song I listened to when I was trying to fix my cadence. Nice. <laughs> I have a whole playlist. Yeah. Yeah. So that was our idea. It was like, hey, you know what? The two pillars of form are foot strike and cadence. So if you run in place like Walter George and you do it to the tune of Rock Lobster, you basically, that's it. You don't need to have any other instruction because when you run in place, like you can't mess it up. And if you're doing bump, 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 bada, 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 it's all right, bump, bump, bump. That's a 90 beats per minute per leg. And that's us is like, that's how you teach form. Just keep it as simple and as feel-based as possible. What would you say of the runners who've reached out to you and asked you about form, anecdotally, what is the most common thing that needs, I would say, things that needs fixing when it comes to a, a, the average runner's running form? Yeah, with, without a doubt, it's overstriding. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll use the example is that sometimes people have heard, you know, that maybe the importance of forefoot striking. So they focus on striking with their forefoot, but they're still reaching out way in front of them. So they're still, even though they think they're landing well, they're still reaching out way in front of them. And the overstriding is what creates the vicious cycle of everything that we've been brainwashed to think we should be feeling like as runners, tight hip flexors. IT band trouble, you know, runner's knee, all that, you know, glute amnesia, everything can kind of point back to some form of overstriding um, that that is kind of answering your question of what what's that number one thing. And again, it, it points back to running in place, you know, regardless of how fast or slow we're running, if you run in place, that's a generally where you want to land and how you want to land to propel yourself forward. You know, the funny thing, Elizabeth, we did a photo shoot out in California and we had our friend Iman Wilkerson, who is a, I'm gonna hold a little picture of Iman right here. Um, she's a fantastic runner and better than me in every sense you can possibly imagine, except for one thing, uh, Iman cannot run downhill. And it was shocking to me because Iman could run laps around me and any other thing, but going downhill because Iman places her foot she looks where her foot's going to go and so she kind of straightens her leg and places her foot coming down the hill it doesn't work because you got this like long extended thing and she's looking for where her landing spot is she doesn't bend her knee and again it was a fascinating thing to see somebody who is a supremely trained thoughtful athlete but because of this overstriding and reaching out uh she's really like handicapped handicapped in a major part of trail running well, I think what's interesting is you, if you watch most major races now, you'll notice that um, not everybody has great form. You can have front runners in major marathons who look like they're about to fall over, and you wonder how they're able to run so fast for so long with that kind of form. Um, have you guys noticed that as well? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that's that's I see that. You know, I've, I've been doing camps for the last 20 years and I, I see the destruction that's taking place and just how people run. And that's that's where my passion is, that if we change the behavior, we don't have to feel the tightness. We don't have to feel all this destruction that we think is par for the course as as endurance runners is that we shouldn't be tight. Tightness comes from muscle imbalance that comes from poor form. And that's something that's no one no one talks about. And that's why you see the career span of an elite runner is like less than the career span of an NFL football player. 
you know, these people run themselves into absolute destruction in a matter of three years and they're gone. Uh, and that's the reason why. Uh, if you, I mean, the difficulty is to, in any major marathon, it's an unnatural act. That, that way of running, of pushing yourself at maximum speed for 26 consecutive miles is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's, it's designed for a breakdown. But then you add an attention on speed versus form on top of it, you know, 18 months and someone's in, a, in an ice bath. And I'm not saying we should judge anybody's form based on what they look like at mile 25 of a marathon. That's just cruel, but <laughs> you know, no other sports like that. You know, you know, you look at, you go watch swimmers. They all for the most part look the same. You look at a, a tennis serve, you look at a golf swing, you know, it, it all is the same. Some people are better at it than others, but the technique itself is the same. And we don't, yeah, we don't look at it. That's actually a great point, Eric. Yeah, that the first sign that someone's going to lose is when, if their form starts to deteriorate in any other sport. And yet, you know, in, in running, we think it doesn't matter. We have been sold as as everyday hobby runners, as our, our you know, as I call myself a recreational runner. Um, we have been sold this idea that all you need to be a runner is just to lace up your shoes and w run out the door. And your premise, and I agree with you, is that running is a skill-based sport and that we need to spend more time building our skills. Um, along with the drills and the, and the mobility and the strength and that kind of stuff, what are some of the other things that we recommend you can, we can help build our skill set with as runners? I think the big revelation that I got from working with Eric is this sense of refilling the energy tank. There's all kinds of forms of free energy out there. And that's how you know, we came up with this idea of the free seven. You know, we think of just that, well, I need my shoes and I got my 45 minutes and that's it. But there are so many other ways to have that upward spiral where you're actually putting energy back into the system. So we, we call them, okay, here, let me get to see if I get the seven right, Eric, ready? So it's food, form, fitness, footwear, family, fun, focus. Boom. Um, there you go. Those seven things. But the whole idea is that Running is a kind of universal activity that, you know, humans evolved as runners. And so it's not just the thing you did for 30 minutes because you ate hagen the night before. It's something that's woven into your life. And what's, what's part of your life? Well, your family, fun, your food, you know, your, your focus, your fitness. And so what, what we wanted to do was show how all these things can be fun and beneficial in their own right, but make running more fulfilling and remove a lot of the complaints people have. Let me just give you, a, let me clarify that with a, like a really simple example. So my wife is a dancer. Like that's her thing is dance. She's a whole instructor, African dance person. And so running is not something that she naturally wants to do. But in an opportunity where she needs to get, and get some exercise, she wants running to feel good. So she developed this thing where she would just load a backpack with books around the house or from Goodwill. And then she would run to all the little free libraries in the neighborhood. So she might end up doing a four-mile loop, but when you think about it, the backpack is getting lighter. So she has that sense of like, oh, the runs are getting easier because the backpack's lighter. She will stop every half mile or mile at the free library for a break while she puts the books in. So she's you know reviving herself, getting her her, her breathing back in order, and then she has that sense of like of accomplishment and fun. So she takes what could be a four-mile grind of a run, and she makes it something that's more like interval-based. It has a social element to it and that you have the, the joy of discovery to see what's inside the box. So 
to me, like that's what running is all about, getting that, that energy input back into your workout. In the book, you have a 90-day program uh, to, you know, get people to run in this, in this born-to-run way. Um, I, what I love about this is that nowhere are you saying, this is the training plan that will help you train for this race distance, or this is the training plan that will help you reach this time and this goal. This, what you've developed is 90 days to help people just become better runners. And that's very unusual for a training program. Well, th this, this is a reboot, you know, and, it, and it's it, from a coaching perspective, it's very, very challenging to say this is a one program for everybody, but this is, this is, this is a foundational way of thinking, whether it's someone who wants to become a runner or look on the other end where, Hey, there's that veteran runner who's hit a plateau that maybe have had chronic issues or that they're, they're just, they've kind of got stuck in their rut. Hey, all, all of us kind of begin to do the things that we enjoy as far as running and maybe skip some of the things that could really help us um, that we don't like as much. And so this is a way to rebuild that foundation for that veteran runner that can then, like I said earlier, take their running into any direction they want to, whether it's then, hey, I want to do my first ultra or I'll do an, a marathon, whatever it is, this is that foundation that's going to set the cement to, you know, just think like Chris did 15 years ago of, okay, hey, I want to go out and use running and however way I want to, whether it's going to the free library on a four mile run or, you know, running up a mountain. And of course, in the program, it is a lot of, lot of low and slow, a lot of that rib cooking, right? Low intensity zone two all day pace. Um, but you also talk about when we're talking about running form, we're talking about efficiency of movement that fast running is also very important. And I think, you know, I am a coach who firmly buys into the importance of developing our aerobic uh, capacity and like all the stuff behind it and lots of easy running, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the misconception we're talking about developing this giant aerobic engine and spending a lot of time in that, in that, you know, zone one, zone two place, it's that Fast running still has a place in your training, in no matter who you are, because that's what teaches you to run efficiently when you are running fast. But we can't run fast all the time. Uh, but just talk to me, talk to us about about how fast running makes us better runners, just from a neuromuscular biomechanical standpoint. Yeah. So typically, the, the faster we run, the better form we're going to have the quicker the cadence will be, the quicker we get off the ground, the more leg stiffness we develop, which is a good thing. Leg stiffness is a good thing. It's not leg tightness, but leg stiffness. So all that goes into building a better rubber band or spring within our body to help us stay healthy. And again, something that's not talked about is leg stiffness helps us to be healthy as a runner. And so Faster running really helps with that. And again, it, it's no different than the kind of the, our conversation about the, the running slower is that most people, most runners aren't running slow enough and they're not running fast enough. And they're kind of in that in between. And this, this really helps develop all that physiological and neuromuscular 
training that we need to be healthy runners. So, Chris, when you started working with Eric, I guess he had you slow way down, but also speed way up. <laughs> Both ends, right? Yeah. So that very first day, so, you know, I was assigned to write an article about Eric for Men's Journal magazine. And we met up in Denver and we were supposed to go through this kind of two or three days of all kinds of different activities. And then once we started talking about running, Eric just like pitched everything else out the door. That's all we focused on was running. And one of the first things he had me do was take off my shoes. And we started to run around the grassy infield in Denver City Park. And he would have me do these 30-second sprints. And the first 30-second sprint, I flamed out at about 22 seconds because I'd never sprinted. I hadn't sprinted since, like, I don't know, high school. And I didn't know how to do it. Like, I didn't know how to pace it. So, like, I blazed out. And after 22 seconds, I'm gasping for air. It took me a while to learn how to sprint for 30 seconds, which shows you just how far it has become. Because all of us get in that, that slow, steady group. So that was the first thing he taught me. And I thought, man, I got a lot to learn here. And then the next thing he taught me, which over time, you know, over the past 15 years we've been working together, I've really investigated this in a lot of other physiological ways. The idea about slowing down. You know, your body has a response to a distressed state. So when you start to get into, you know, anaerobic distress, your body's going to start to shut down all unnecessary mechanisms. So... Literally, your peripheral vision will diminish. You know, your range of motion will diminish. Your body is recognizing that we're running out of gas here. We got to conserve fuel at all costs. And so that's why you see people, you know, late into a race, like their heads down, their arms are barely shuffling, um, they're, they're, they're bending or they're doubling over because their body's trying to conserve energy. And that's why that. And it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable, unpleasant state to be in. But most of us will spend a portion of every run in that state, as opposed to the opposite, which is that I got plenty of air. My peripheral vision is wide open. I'm getting 180 degrees of perspective. I'm smelling things. I'm seeing colors. I'm enjoying things. I'm at a conversational pace where if I've been smart enough to be with somebody or even with my dog, I can now actually breathe out communication. And that's the other thing he taught me was how to go wicked fast so I could train my body to move at that speed and learn form, but also how to slow down in a way where it was both bouncy and light, but within my capability to be, stay outside of anaerobic distress and really enjoy myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm coaching ultra runners and marathoners to, to races, and, you know, there's a whole, you know, I typically work with, you know, an athlete for eight nine months out of the year so that, you know there's a full-on program with that but i think going back to what chris was saying and maybe what's subtle in the book is that we're teaching people what appropriate levels of effort are based on what type of run they're looking to do that day meaning hey if you're looking to to do something on the faster end hey this this is your appropriate pace for three to four minutes so it gives them an idea of where they should be based on their own level of effort. And so that goes back to the whole enjoyment of this running. And I see it on the, the faster end. So many people don't understand how to pace themselves or what appropriate level of effort is for them for their, for their 5K workout that day. You know, if we're talking hardcore coaching. You know, so this, this, this book has a whole 
chart for them to really understand what their own level of ability is for any type of workout. Hey, Eric, you know what I'm just realizing? Dude, we should have called this book The Art of the Bounce because... The Art of the Bounce. Really, that's, that's what it is. Hey, uh, Elizabeth, do you notice... Did you ever watch Winnie the Pooh when you were a kid? Yes. Do you remember the Tigger song? The wonderful thing about Tigger is this Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber, their bottoms are made out of springs. Bouncing, bouncing, bouncing all day long. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. Bring on, girl. That was impressive. But that's really what it's all about. The wonderful thing about Tigger is Tigger just bounces, bounces, bounces. But if you watch a boxer jumping rope, bounce, 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 bounce. What they're, what they're tying into is that natural elastic recoil, which, again, is putting energy back into the system. You watch a boxer jumping rope or a tigger bouncing along, they could go all day because they're really expending very little caloric energy to move their bodies. They're just bouncing. And that's really what Eric is dialing in with his run form is to learn how to take advantage of that in your running. Running is essentially a series of single leg hops. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you want to get as much energy return out of each hop as you possibly can. Right. But running is jumping. And if we look at it that way, there's only one way to jump. You know? Yeah. Basketball players aren't landing on their heels when they're after they they, you know, slam slam the ball down the, the hoop, you know. If you ask anybody to do a standing broad jump, they're gonna do it all the same way. And so if we start to see running as jumping completely changes our perspective of what we think that activity is. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is really woven throughout both books, um, is really this, this sense of the importance of community and that we're, we're all in this together, right? Whether or not you love running, you know, whether you're just there to support your friends or your family, but the people who, who are into running, who like to run, um, you know, like the friends you make along the way, the the friends you choose who become your family, both like the stories that you tell have such a strong element of community and that nobody in them is a solo operator, that everybody is able to do the things they do because of the community that they find themselves in. Um, am I picking up on that correctly? Or are you actually like, <laughs> I mean, it is that important, right? It is important that we have that. When Eric and I were trying to figure out the layout of the book, we kept shuffling the cards around because we wanted to put them in order of importance. And it's a very difficult choice, particularly with family and fun. Um, they, they could have been the first parts of the book because I, I think in an evolutionary basis, we evolved as communal creatures. You know, that's what humans do better than any other species. We run long distances and we adapt and cooperate. Like that's what set us apart from other species. And unfortunately, we've taken running and turned it into a solitary activity. And I think a lot of the sort of unhappiness or dissatisfaction or staleness of running comes from the fact that we're out there just grinding it out ourselves at our same pace. And we've taken it away from, I mean, you can't imagine a kid running by themselves. Like no kid will go to the playground. Oh, I'm just gonna run laps by myself, I'm good. No, they're looking for other kids and they're messing around and running. And so to remember that that is how humans evolved. As, like in a hunting pack, you would never go off in the wilderness by yourself because you would never come back. You always go out, you know, with, with your gang and run together and at a pace where everybody feels that they're included. And that's something we, we really hope to um, kind of reignite in the running community. 
there is this uh, stereotype of, I mean, there's a whole Iron Maiden song about it, the loneliness of the long distance runner, right? That this is some sort of monastic pursuit. Um, but I, I find that I have a great time when I'm running with friends. Even if I do most of my runs alone, I really like the ones that I can do with my friends. And I think a lot of people, when they get into this place of they're chasing their hyper-specific goal, they don't always then turn to the people around them or maybe feel like they have people who don't understand what they're trying to do. And so they just kind of become lonelier and lonelier when it's together that I think a lot of the meaning in running comes from. You know, what as a more selfish um, pursuit, when you are running at a conversational pace, you've locked in that gear one, gear two, you know, that, that zone one, zero two. And so if you say, hey, I'm going to run with somebody who's slower than me and have a companion, secretly your motivation will be, well, that person going to keep me in zone one, zone two, so I'm good. Well, and I'll just add too that I'm often asked, you know, what's my favorite run or what's my favorite race that I've ever done or where, where I have I traveled to that's been one of my favorite runs. And I, I run in the mountains alone all the time because I work for myself and I can go during the day and I'm pretty much a solitary runner. But when someone asks me what my favorite runs are, I'll say, hey, Chris and I just went to Harlem, New York and ran with 200 people down the streets of Harlem, that was an amazing run. It's something I don't do. And it was just an amazing experience. And it, it speaks to that community vibe that running is so special that way. Well, by the time that this episode has been released, the book will be available. So for everybody who's listening, the book is called Born to Run 2. It is out now. You should go buy a copy. Thank you so much to both of you, my guests, the authors, Chris and Eric, for being here. I really appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. That was very really fun, Elizabeth. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.